Here we are for another evening under Lamplight Podcast with Robert Louis Abrahamson, coming now to the tenth canto of Dante's Inferno. Canto nine closed as Dante and Virgil began walking along the edge of a large plain, just inside the walls of the city of Dis, that is lower hell a plain covered with large stone tombs being baked by flames around them with their lids removed so that dante can hear cries of pain coming from within these tombs virgil explained contain the souls of the heretics but it's a landscape devoid of any human forms it's very eerie there's a hidden path that virgil leads dante along between the walls of the city and the plain of the tombs. As they walk along, they converse. Dante asks questions, the proper thing to do, since he's on this journey to see and learn what it is he is seeing. Would I be allowed to see any of these tormented souls, he asks. The lids are off the tombs. There are no guards. It seems like I'm being invited to have a look. Virgil picks up the detail of the lids removed from the tombs. On the last day, he explains, when the dead are reunited with their bodies, they'll return here and the lids will be shut tight forevermore. And like some kind, and like some kind of tour guide, he adds, and over there on your left, you will see the place where Epicurus and his followers can be found. And if I'm not mistaken, you'll get your wish very shortly. As, as well as that wish you haven't mentioned to me. Oh, I didn't mean to hide anything from you, Dante says. I, I just felt that I should keep my questions brief, as you've advised me to do. And then suddenly, suddenly, from out of one of the tombs comes a voice, addressing Dante as a Tuscan. If you please, could you stop for a bit, the voice says. I can tell from your voice that you're from Florence, our noble city that I was once perhaps too harsh towards. This sudden voice startles Dante, who backs away, closer to Virgil. N no, says Virgil, don't back away, go closer. That's the soul of Farinata. Take a closer look. And there, rising up in the box, is as a figure, visible from the waist up, looking unconcerned, as though he's far above things as sorted as the pains of hell. Virgil gives some brief advice. Be careful how you speak with him, before keeping to the background and letting Dante have his first encounter alone with one of the dead souls. Farinata gives Dante a look and starts with an unexpected question. What family do you come from? Dante tells him what he's asked for, and then he raises his eyebrows in disdain. Your family were my bitter enemies, and my families, and my parties. I had to drive them out of Florence on two different occasions. Maybe so, Dante returns, but if they were kicked out, they managed to regroup and return both times and kick your people out, and your people haven't managed to make a comeback. And before Farinata can make a comeback to this remark, a new shade suddenly appears from the tomb, not all the way up, just from the chin up. It's almost a kind of pantomime, as that head looks all around Dante as though searching for someone else there. 
and when it becomes clear that there is no one else, the head starts weeping. You're here, I suppose, the head says, because you're such a great poet, but why isn't my son that great poet with you here? Well, I'm not actually here alone, Dante replies, guessing by what that head was saying and by the place he was assigned to in hell, Dante has guessed his identity, the father of his friend, the poet Guido de Calvacanti. He explains, I'm being led through these regions towards someone whom your son Guido may be held in disdain. What? cries that head as it rises up higher in alarm. You, you say held in disdain? Has he died then? Dante is a bit puzzled by this, and Cavalcanti is overwhelmed by that moment's silence and keels backwards back into the tomb to be seen no more. Meanwhile, through all this, Farinata has remained just as he had been, with that look of proud scorn, and continues just where they had left off, as though there has been no interruption. The fact that they never made a comeback torments me more than even this torture here in the oven tomb. But I can see that in not too long a time you yourself will know what it's like never to be able to come back into Florence. But before you go, try to explain to me why your people have been so unrelenting towards my people. Oh, we haven't forgotten that slaughter your people inflicted on us at the Battle of Montaperti, where the river was dyed red with our blood. Oh, y yes, I was there at Montaperti, but I wasn't the only one there. And afterwards, when the others in my party wanted to destroy Florence, I was the only voice that called for more moderation. Dante changes the subject and asks about something that has been puzzling him. How is it that you dead souls seem to be able to see into the future, but, judging from what Cavalcanti just said, cannot see what is going on in the present, up there in the living world? Well, the answer is pretty straightforward. The damned souls in hell can see, not clearly, but they can see, things that will happen in the future. But closer to the present, and in the present moment up to the living world, they know nothing. They learn what's going on only when new people arrive and pass on the news. And so when, when time comes to an end on the last day, there will be no future, and these souls will have no more knowledge. Dante's satisfied with this answer, but he's sorry that he'd misled Cavalcanti, and he asks Farinata to explain to him that Guido is indeed still living. He had just hesitated because he was confused about why the dead soul could not know it for himself. Oops, Virgil's now calling him to move on. But one more question. Can you tell me who else is down there with you? More than a thousand, Farinata says, including an emperor and a cardinal. He mentions two big shots, but he can't be bothered naming any more of the others. Then he drops back down, out of sight. Now Dante returns to Virgil, but he's bothered by that prediction that he'll be exiled from Florence. Yes, Virgil says, keep that in mind, but, but don't worry about it too much. Later on in this journey up in heaven, you'll learn more and understand the pattern your life is taking. 
They've been walking anti-clockwise around the outer rim of this circle, but now they turn in towards the center, towards that big pit the circles go around. And Dante recoils from the stench coming up from way down below. And with that, the canto ends. Well, there's a lot to discuss about this canto, and we're not going to cover it all. I think I'm going to have to go round and round the topic, and in doing so, perhaps open up a few points for us. First of all, as usual, the general pattern of the canto. We can see five parts to this canto, each part featuring Dante in dialogue with one other person. First, there's Dante and Virgil, then Dante and Farinata, then Dante and Cavalcanti, then Dante and Farinata again, and finally... Dante and Virgil again. So we see it's a kind of mirror pattern or envelope pattern, and in such cases it's, it's often the section in the middle that provides the important detail. Well, we'll see as we go whether the Cavalcanti dialogue fulfills that role. Let's go through this pattern again in a little more detail. First, Dante and Virgil. Their little dialogue introduces three themes that are developed in the canto. First, there is the openness to a wiser person, as Dante consents to be led by Virgil, unlike heretics, who are convinced that their own view of things is the only right way. The theme of the Last Judgment comes in here, too, when the tombs will be shut and these heretics will be finally locked into their own boxes. And there is the theme of communication, seen here in the way Virgil is so attentive to Dante that he understands what's bothering Dante, even without Dante expressing this. And then Farinata, who first appeared in Canto Six, when Dante had asked Chaco about the destiny of several great men of Florence, and was told to expect to see Farinata, among others, further down in hell. Well, here he is, one of the great military leaders of the previous generation, august, respectable, old-fashioned, and boxed in. It seems like he wants to have a conversation. Be kind enough, he says, to stop here for a while. But he is not interested in Dante himself, only in Dante's social status and political party, as though these things matter any more down here in hell. Dante treats him with respect, but Farinata just wants to continue the factional hostilities that characterized his life in the world above. That antagonism is not communication, which involves a mutual working together to arrive at a common meaning. In fact, Farinata gives, <laughs> gives only part of the story of the factional battles, only those parts that support his ego. Dante has to add the additional details about Farinata's party's definitive defeat. <laughs> in a supreme example of defective communication, Cavalcanti simply breaks in, ignoring Farinata, interested only in his own concerns. Just as Farinata's interests were limited exclusively to social class and faction, so Cavalcanti's interests are centered on his son. Dante exists for him only as a friend of his son's. There's something comic about Cavalcanti's movements, as I tried to show in my summary a few minutes ago. It's the absurdity of the self-obsessed. He doesn't even see his own son as a separate being. 
Like many doting parents, the son seems to exist only to elevate the parent's ego. He does not ask anything about his son. He's just offended that if poetic honors are going around, his son should have been at the top of the list. And what matters is that his son should be still alive so that his family retains its presence in the living world. It seems logical then, though also comic, that this man with his narrow concerns misunderstands Dante's words. In fact, in fact, he has misunderstood Dante's whole purpose here, thinking he's visiting hell because of his great genius, that is, as a, as a kind of prize awarded to him for being such a great poet, completely missing the point that Dante is there not because his genius had risen so high, but because his life has sunk so low that this horror journey is the only way to turn him around. Cavalcanti's comic shtick has perhaps changed the tone of the canto, and Farinata now seems slightly comic himself, great man though he is, in the way he simply resumes the conversation as though there had been no interruption. But that's to be expected, I suppose, when we learn that these damned souls can see, vaguely, into the future, but not in the present moment. Farinata has not even seen or heard Cavalcanti. His vision is so limited that it cannot take this in. There are three parts to this second dialogue between Dante and Farinata. First, there is the mention of the infamous Battle of Monteperti, where the amount of blood shed there turned the river red, prefiguring the river of blood we will encounter at the next circle when we enter the area of violence. Heresy, with its focus on division and opposition, leads directly to violence. Farinata, however, was a voice of restraint when he urged the men of his party not to destroy Florence, which is probably why he will not be found further down among the violent sinners. Then there is the explanation of the limited vision of the souls in the Inferno, who can see somewhat into future events, but for whom the present is a blank. Dante, however, becomes aware of his own mistake and tries to make amends by asking Farinata to explain to Cavalcanti that his son was still alive. Not, not that there's any chance that Farinata will oblige Dante by delivering the message, or even that he took in Dante's request. And in any case, <laughs> at the time the poem is set, spring 1300, Guido de Cavalcanti had only a few more months to live. And finally, in answer to Dante's question about who else is confined in that tomb, Farinata mentions only an emperor and a cardinal. Anyone of lower social standing is not worth speaking of. His kind of vision takes notice of only a tiny portion of the population. And then the final section with its clear communication between Dante and Virgil. Dante will have explained to Virgil that he's perturbed by Farinata's prediction that in fifty months he, Dante, will suffer exile from Florence. Like the damned souls, Dante has become fixed on the future, which he can see only dimly. But Virgil understands Dante's concerns and reassures him, raising his finger to emphasize his point, that he will understand more clearly what it's all about further on in the journey. Meanwhile, 
there's the present journey to focus on, and they move along. In fact, Dante cannot help coming right back to the present moment as he is assailed by the appalling stench coming from below as they reach the edge of this circle of hell, and the whole rest of that funnel pit lies exposed to them. And so what has Dante told us about the sin of heresy? Well, there's been no mention of the literal meaning of the sin, that is, an obstinate divergence from orthodox thinking. Instead, Dante focuses on the psychological and social consequences of such obstinacy. Orthodoxy means right thinking, usually taken to mean assenting to the doctrines established by the Church. But we can define right thinking more broadly as having a clear, comprehensive view of reality, being open to the world around us, seeing things right. And so a heretic is someone who opposes that comprehensive view, someone who sets up his or her own view of what is going on in the world and insists that this is the right view when in fact it is only their own partial view. Virgil was right to warn Dante to be careful of the words he used when talking to the heretic. That kind of person interprets what you say only in his own partial way. And we have just seen how such partial views lead to obsessions, misunderstandings, factional hostilities, and, remember Cavalcanti in the centre of the canto, and an absurd comedy, because these people are so obviously wrong. Dante has focused here on the specific heresy of Epicurus, who had high standards of virtue, but held that the soul does not live on after death. And yet here, the height of absurdity, and yet here we see these two souls clearly proving their own Epicurean beliefs wrong by their continued existence in this after-death world. And, and so to return to that five-part pattern of the canto, look what it shows us. The two outer sections show us our heroes, Dante and Virgil, able to communicate together, even understanding what isn't expressed. Then the two sections inside these two, with Farinata able to understand Dante, but unconcerned with what Dante has to say. And in the centre is the complete failure of communication, abrupt, absurd, and pathetic. Oh, and one more thing. We mentioned in an earlier episode that one of Dante's main concerns is community. Heaven is a community. Hell is the complete breakdown of community. And we have just seen that this inner hell is constructed as a kind of city, an enclosed community, or anti-community, with walls and gated entrances. We should have community on our minds. And yet the very first people we encounter have no communion, and live instead in a fuzzy world of their own limited visions. If we are ever going to have a hope of moving outside the stone box of our own partial understanding of reality, we have to take into consideration the way other people also understand things, and to take them and their views seriously. Isn't that what we call community? Dante has, probably, learned this lesson, and is ready to move on. And so are we. And when we come back next time, we'll find that Canto 11 
gives us a bit of a rest period before we start facing the real horrors. See you then.